We wish to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of the land we record this podcast on, the Yuggera people and their continued connection to the land and waterways of Yuggera country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. Today's guest is Premiership winning AFL player Tom Boyd. Oh, great tackle. He made the spoil. He made the tackle. Boyd takes it. Tom Boyd, a ball burster, a big goal, a big kick. That's a goal. Don't worry about that. That's a goal for the Western Bulldogs. It's a real thrill for me. I grew up in the era of watching you dominate, but yeah, also not just in your sporting achievements. I uh, I love the work that you do, so awesome to be with you. Samesies, that's so nice. Thank you. It's um, yeah, it's a real thrill. I'm reading your book currently. It's amazing. What was it like writing a book? It was, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, and you just kind of went, "This is what I'm going to do." Yeah, I um. I mean, like much like everyone, I think the pandemic was you know, it was pretty terrifying in the first stages. I mean, and, and really driven, I think that the sort of terror was driven by the uncertainty of how long it was going to last. And, you know, for me as a person, I've said, I think repeatedly to people, is that like structure is such a core principle that I need to follow just to look after myself. So mm. whether it's getting up and running my five-year-old still puppy Labrador who's somewhere behind me, whether it's, you know, going to work at a certain time, whether it's going to bed at a relatively reasonable, consistent time, all of those things are really important to me. And the other thing that's consistent is having something that's purpose-filled and has some meaning to me uh, in terms of the work that I do. And in 2020, much like everyone else, you know, my work disappeared completely. I'd retired from the game sort of eight months beforehand. And I was, yeah, left with a whole heap of time and my you know, my reaction to that was to take stock and reflect back on perhaps things that had passed and to really sit down and write. And I learned very quickly that I was jumping the gun and that I'd written a sort of version of what I thought a book would look like. And then I met with my wonderful editor, Simone, and she goes, great, let's throw it all out and start again. <laughs> we actually need to talk, like, talk, talk about, you know, what you're thinking and feeling rather than what has happened and what you've learned. Because, um, yeah, you're just telling everyone what you learned, which is great. But how did you get there? Mm. So it was both a difficult and quite a cathartic journey, I would say, for me. Much more difficult than talking about my mental health challenges in person. Much more sitting in moments where I either regret things or I could have done things better or I you know, really needed help and didn't, didn't access it. Um, so I, I would say yeah, overall it was quite therapeutic in ways to, uh, to really sort of bring it all together, package up that part of my life and continue to move forward. It's an interesting thing. Um because I don't know if you know, but I've written a book as well. <laughs> Just kidding. Beneath the surface. <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks. Thanks for, yeah, acknowledging Ac- it. Accurately, accurately titled, I would say. Yeah. Like. yeah. <laughs> I actually wanted to call it All That Glitters, but so now I have a podcast that is called All That Glitters. <laughs> um, anyway, I digress. Uh, we actually worked with the same person, Simone. She helped me with my book and obviously she's done an amazing job in in helping you write your book. What was that process like in terms of, I mean, you know, because you're like, I've written this book. And you, and she's like, mm, let's throw that out. For me, she was my ghostwriter. So Simone did an amazing yep. job in ghostwriting my 
my book. And it was such a confronting process to kind of hand that over. And I remember reading one of the first chapters that she wrote in my voice and I was like, oh God, that I don't think that sounds like me. <laughs> and then she, like, it just was so perfect. It ended up brilliant. But it's such a weird process to go through talking about these really intimate, shameful sometimes moments of regret in your life and then having to like just chat about it with somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I think the chatting was the easy bit. I've done thousands of hours of therapy. so (laughs) You're like, I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah, this wasn't new to me. So the actual process was, um, you know, I would say that, you know, my career was unique but certainly not collided with raving success or, um, you know, it really didn't end up being what I wanted it to be. So I didn't have any illusions around the fact that I couldn't just go and say, hey, give me this big book deal. Like, let's, everyone wants to hear my story. But what I did think I had that perhaps other ex-athletes perhaps don't is the ability actually to do the writing myself. Mm. Um, And that was really, really important because to your point, it's like, how do you get someone to articulate or express or even speak on your behalf in the darkest and most desperate moments of your life. It's a really, really tough thing to do. Now, with Simone, she does an amazing job of really getting to know you as a person as much as getting to know your story, which is why she can do the ghostwriting. Now, for me, I was explicitly clear to uh, Alan and I'm one who ended up publishing, which was the first thing is I'm writing this book, um, and the second thing is that what I put in it is uh, completely up to me. And to their credit, they were like, that's fine. We'll give you a strong editor. I'd already written essentially a sort of seventy to 80,000 word uh, version or pieces of the book. I sort of had compartments. Mm. And then I met Simone and Simone's like, great, we're starting again. Um, and funnily enough, I think she came into it thinking that I was going to be really, really stubborn and that I thought I knew it all. And, look, I mean, maybe that's the uh, the general stereotype of an ex-footballer. But I was really looking for, hey, Simone, I've got, I think I have something to say. I think I can do the actual word count. I just need someone to really help me structure it and let's say provoke me to think in a way that's useful for other people. Yeah, because that, that's that's the thing, to be able to communicate it in a, in a way that is structured well and it's not just like I did this and then I did that. It's like to actually communicate and make people feel something. I mean, that's right. what you're able to articulate really beautifully through your book. Well, funnily enough, I mean, Simone's feedback to me was that my action writing, like the what's happening, she goes, it's amazing. Like I've had, I didn't have to change any of it. I didn't even have to coach you around that. So I don't know if that's, you know, a function of me being really quite good at English at school mm. or being able to put myself in moments in games and understanding the sort of dynamics of what I was thinking and also what was happening. But what I wasn't good at, especially in the early stages, and we probably did a chapter, I think, which didn't end up making the book, which was around my childhood. It was like 10,000 words and it was just missing the essence of who I was and missing exactly what you just spoke about in the how do you convey a message through emotion um, and a story through emotion? And the reason for that is that we're people, we feel our emotions, we don't need to you know, explain them to ourselves. Mm. So it's sort of the first time that you have to do that. And I think uh, I got better at it. But the other thing that I would say is one of the great challenges of doing the writing is once you start, 
and you get on a roll, and this is something that's well articulated, I would say, amongst authors around the world, is you just got to keep going. Mm. And the reason you have to keep going till you hit sort of a critical point where you can pause is, at least in my perspective, if when I did chapters where I wrote half and half, let's say on two different days or two different weeks, I'd go back and they'd be like, this is a different person. Interesting. <laughs> like they're connecting the dots between the two things. And it wasn't as big a disparity, I'd say, as I probably thought when I read it. But mm. It was certainly notable to me. And so, you know, I remember days where I'd been in a bedroom that had been converted to an office for nine hours straight. The whole room stunk. I was just, <laughs> you know, I was just pouring over this computer with no fresh air or anything. And it certainly mm. wasn't a healthy way to do it. But, you know, on those days, I might write 10, 15,000 words. Mm. Um, and that really was the only way that I could get it done amongst doing my other jobs. So. I'm so yeah, hell of an experience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge um, shift physically, like the the physical shift from going from being an athlete to sitting in a room for like nine hours yeah. a day. <laughs> like that must have impacted you somehow. Did that because I I know when I retired and then went into my first office job. Oh my god, just <laughs> sitting for eight hours a day physically, my body hurt. Just my back hurt. My hip flexors were tight. Did you find that that was an issue for you? Yeah, well, now that you're talking about it, everything's aching. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> like, yes. thank you for pointing that out. So you're I, welcome. Um, I've had, uh, I've had a, an array of injuries over the years. I've probably had oh, you know, at least six or seven, maybe more surgeries across the course of my junior and senior footballing career. And I would say that even when you retire at 23 like me, uh, they don't go away, those injuries. No mm. one tells you that. They're like, they just stay there or get worse because you're not doing as much. you're not to, moving you know, and you're not getting your right. physio and you're not getting your massages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not doing every sort of minuscule, granular detail in your wage program. So the one thing that actually really stood out to me is I had a lot of back issues, but I'd never had any thoracic issues, which is basically me being too tall for desks and like bending in the wrong spot. (laughs) So that was like a real, I would say that was a real change for me. But the other thing was that because I was going through COVID and, um, you know, we were in Anglesey where my fiance is from and we were, she was working with her dad who needed um, some care. And because there's no commuting, because my work structure had changed, I had all this time just to exercise. So my day was basically filled with writing, whatever meetings I had for the other work that I do potentially some online virtual talks or, or keynotes, but that was, you know, really not the same as it had been pre-COVID. Mm. Uh, and then whatever spare time I had, I was really trying to get out and exercise as much as possible because, yeah, I mean, what else were we supposed to do? Yeah. Well, I, I'm actually interested because at the start you said that you were very cognizant on the fact that you needed to have a structure and a routine to your day and week and month um, yep. because as athletes we – we need that. Like we don't realize that we need it because we're just living it. We're just told what to do, where to go, what to, you know, eat, drink, whatever, pack. Yeah. Um, where to be. Where to be at all times. Like for me, it was till the age of 27. For you, it was till the age of 23. How did you know that that was something that you actually needed? Had you spoken about that with other athletes, other players who had retired, or was that just something that you knew implicitly that you needed? Uh, I think I worked it out through uh, difficult times. I mean, COVID wasn't a perfect experience for me, nor was it for anyone. Mm. 
I spoke to Chris Anstey re- recently, um, obviously superstar basketballer uh, and someone I actually idolized a lot growing up because he was a big guy who could shoot. And before I committed to football, basketball was a huge part of my junior journey. And he said something that was you know, amazingly interesting to me, which was sport is the only career that when you stop at the age of 23 or 25, 27, like you, or even older, you have to tell everyone that you're retiring Yeah. other than, hey, we're just changing industry. We're still the same person. You're just changing your career. Like you're yeah. just shifting. Yeah, we're making a shift. What's the, it's like, I'm sure I've heard, this is probably wrong, but I'm sure I've heard some stat, which is like the average person changes career like seven times in their life or whatever. Exactly. So for me, I think uh, that concept really was something that I knew when I retired. It was like, I'm not leaving because I'm depressed. I'm not leaving because I... Uh, I just can't do it anymore. I don't want to play football mm. anymore. I'm, I'm done with this part of my life and I'm ready to go to the next chapter. And so I think that is a motivating factor for me to actually go, okay, what do I need in my life? Mm. But the other thing that it sounds funny, but I just used to walk for hours in the morning to fill up the old commuting time. Mm. And I needed to do it one because my dog is a maniac and she needs exercise <laughs> yep. all the time. But two, as a person who gets energy from connecting to people. And by connecting, I genuinely mean sitting and talking and discussing ideas. That's why I love doing podcasts. That's why I love doing meetings with people. I love being in the office. I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get that. And so I spent a lot of the time on those walks, basically calling people who were either, let's say, in situations where their work was absolutely dismantled or dismembered by COVID. People that I was worried about or people that I missed or that I was really needed to connect with or wanted to check in on. And that was something that gave me a real source of satisfaction to get through the many hours of the day that we had to contend with when we were in lockdown. So in terms of the routine as a, a concept, I think it's good for almost everyone. Everybody. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Like, I mean, there's some ability, I certainly think there's some ability to have some flexibility, but one of the things that, you know, in the other work that I do that we're seeing really, really being important is actually the ability for people to block out time to do certain tasks because of this hybrid working environment where you're commuting and then you're doing a virtual, it's actually you're doing probably 30 or 40% more than what you were doing originally. And you've got to do the work as well. Mm. And so to be actual, even just to mentally block out parts of your calendar and say, I'm doing budgeting and forecasting for this hour. Mm. I'm picking the kids up from school at this hour. It's really helping people basically just fend off the the many questions and requests that you get from the people that you work with and even the people that you socialise with. But that's exactly right. I think we need to be explicit about having those moments of your day because, like, for me, my week is really varied now and I – desperately miss routine and structure that I had when I was an athlete with three small children and you know starting businesses and having a podcast it like it's all over the shop now every week is different so I find that I need to structure my day in a way that I have those rhythms and rituals kind of built in at different moments so everything is different but then I have these moments where I feel safe and calm (laughs) and I can kind of get into the day. Do you feel like that's how you've structured your life now? (laughs) It's maybe a strange way to describe it. I would say I relapsed back into structure just Mm. out of necessity. Oh, 100%. Um, that, that, That addiction to having, you know, basically your entire year mapped out day by day. That's was what, something that I couldn't fully shake. Entirely so, uh, why I returned to swimming. 
Yeah. <laughs> like I retired at 23 and then went back and I was like, I yep. can't, yeah, I need to go back. <laughs> I need Yeah, I need well, you, you're, I mean, in many ways, like you're indoctrinated into, I mean, and I think, you know, my cousin was a, a national swimmer in Denmark and look, obviously he didn't reach the heights of you, but like the swimming ethos is almost like this indoctrination about just work yeah. all the time. He, he lived with us for nine months and I was like, oh, I couldn't do that. It's just insane. But football is, you know, not completely dissimilar. And, and there's a certain amount of expectation around, you know, obviously turning up and the, the real cultural things about if you're not 10 minutes early, you're five minutes late. Yep. If you miss things, you get to get punished and all of those sort of things that come with professional sports. So to make a very long-winded answer, what I decided to do was that I realized, and I think COVID was a real positive in this sense, that the speaking as a only function of my work wasn't going to work for me. Mm. Like it wasn't enough for me to go out and get the real interaction and engagement and long-term relationship building that I wanted with these people if I just was there for an hour. Mm. And the other thing that I couldn't guarantee workflow, I couldn't guarantee structure as we've been talking so much about. So what I decided to do was the first bit was write a book, obviously, which I basically blotted out time when I would write, which mm. really helped. I started to really not pressure, but pester people to give me exposure to different things in terms of work. Mm. And eventually about probably 15 or 16 months ago now, I started working with a company called Ever Perform three days a week. Now, the three days are malleable and they're flexible around when the work's there. Mm. But at least I know when I wake up on a Monday, it's like 60% of my week is dedicated to working for this company and working with people that I love working with and, and a company that I really, really believe in. And then the rest of it is sort of the sugar on top. Mm. And that's worked really, really well for me in terms of not only doing a number of things that keep me interested, but two, all of the things that I do are really in the same vein, which is about improving people's well-being improving the conversation around mental health and certainly not being a person who gives advice, but someone who really hopefully shares an experience that is useful. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I think it would be really easy for people to make an assumption that you're this massive AFL star, which obviously you were, you were on a huge contract, you know, multiple millions of dollars contract and people then assume that you're you're fine. Everything's rosy in your world, right? I'm so fascinated because you have an ability to articulate things and you, you clearly have a, an incredible self-awareness of the things that you need, which I am assuming, but I'm pretty sure I know that that comes from a lot of difficulty that you've had to navigate in your relatively short life. You're only 26 years old. Do you, do you feel like that's the case? Because you've obviously having you've had to become ultra self aware of what yep. your needs and requirements are, and I assume that that's because of your experiences with mental illness. Yeah. So let's get to the uh, one of the great problems I think we have as as a society in terms of understanding mental health. At the age of 21, I was earning a million dollars a year to play football. Mm. I just played in front of 99,981 people on the MCG. Uh, I had been one of the best best players in the day. Yeah. I'd kicked a goal that will go down in history as one of the you know most memorable moments. And I also was part of a footy club who hadn't won a premiership in 62 years. Pretty bloody good resume at 21. Mm. 
And I don't say that to brag. I say that to really explicitly point out that seven months later, I hadn't slept in weeks. I was depressed. I was anxious. I was on the absolute last stage of my ability to cope. And that had nothing to do with any of the money. That had nothing to do with any of the adulation, celebration, or success that I'd had previously. Now, the mistake that I made and the mistake that many people do, whether they are thinking about themselves or others, is that we think we're all absolutely unique. Now, we are. We're unique people, unique experiences. No one, not one person has the same journey through life as another. But the experiences that we have, the struggles that we have, the doubts, the frustration, the fears, you know, the things that scare us in terms of our future, the uncertainty, all of that is a universal thing that we all experience. Mm. And our tendency as people, my tendency specifically to talk about myself was to go, no one could possibly understand what I'm going through because no one's been a number one draft pick who's been traded after a year for $7 million, mm. who's won a premiership and so, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. We always paint these stories like my uniqueness is both my greatest strength but also my biggest weakness. But this happens every single day when I talk to people mm. and they say, oh, this guy, he'll be fine because they've got the wife, they've got the kids, they've got the good job, they've been promoted to partner, they're earning enough money. Yeah. Or you know, that person over there, well, she's really successful. What she got to complain about, she's on TV, you know, Libby's won three, or sorry, four gold medals. Like, I mean, whatever you want to say for people, when you look at them and you go, that's the measure of happiness, mm. you fail to recognize that they're just people. They're all just people and they've all got the same problems uh, as you do. Now, that obviously comes with varying degrees of socioeconomic issues and cultural issues and family. And I understand that there is a spectrum to deal with here. But I think the biggest thing that I said to myself was no one can help you, no one can help you because no one can understand you. And that never worked. And my encouragement to people is don't think of yourself as unique in any other way than, hey, I'm a unique person, I'm interesting and I have value to bring to the world that no one else can bring. But you're not unique in terms of the things that may go wrong in your life. And everyone needs help. Everyone needs a hand up. And, yeah, accessing that when you need it is super, super important. What was that process for you like when you realised that, you know, you needed to get the help to kind of claw your way out of that hole that you had come to be in? Yeah, super, super, super painful. Mm. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I first started having challenges with my mental health in 2014 when I moved to Sydney to play for the Giants. And, and look, it was really around sleep was the first driving factor. And, you know, I think it's important for people to recognise what happens when you get drafted, particularly when you get drafted as a high pick. Now, in my case, I was picked first overall. I was drafted on a Thursday night in November. The Wednesday before I finished my physics exam, my last exam for school, so eight days, I'm standing on the stage and a few thousand people basically receiving my jumper and thanking my family and friends and the footy clubs and all that sort of stuff. Then I return home on the Friday. The Saturday, we have the celebration at my home and on the Sunday, eight or 10 days, I suppose, removed from that final school exam. I fell asleep in Sydney starting pre-season the next morning. Um, and not only did I go from being a junior footballer to a senior and amateur to professional, I also moved states and I also had to become an adult mm. in 10 days. And, yes, the club help you and um, there's certainly some, some support that you get, but it's a lot to handle. Yeah. And for me, it was someone who had an enormous amount of expectation on myself and also had an enormous amount of people with high expectations on me as a person. 
it was a really tough transition for me moving out of a footy club, which was community-based support, care, to, hey, no, this is this is the big time. This mm. is the real deal. And, you know, speed of growth is the number one name of the game. Mm. So I had issues with sleep and obviously you're going through the first full AFL preseason. So my, you know, fatigue levels continue to build and build. And then I started to have my first issues with anxiety and I had no idea what these things were at the time. And I was told that most likely I was homesick. There would be, you know, it would go away. A lot of the boys have struggles when they move up. Look, maybe that was part of the problem, but it certainly wasn't the whole equation. Now that continued um, through 2015 and 16. And really the biggest challenges that I had were around this sleep concern that just kept getting worse. And I went from being a restless sleeper to taking hours at night to get, in, uh, to get to sleep till basically in 2016 and 15, there were times when I went into games where I basically hadn't slept for two days. Mm. Now, I'd been in bed for two nights, but I'd been up the, almost the whole time. Mm. And I play a game of footy and it's really common for footballers who play, particularly night games, to really struggle to sleep, just the adrenaline yeah. and the sort of nervous energy. And I'm sure you would understand. So then I'm three days removed from sleep. And that was really where I started to have my biggest issues with depression. And essentially the story of how I experienced football was it went from being, if you win, it's awesome. Then if it was, I won, it was okay. Then it was relief. Mm. Then it was, thank God that I didn't lose. Mm. But the, the losing went from this sucks to, oh, we'll go get them next week mm. to this is horrible. I can't imagine feeling worse than I do right now. Mm. And that was sort of the overall experience across those two years. But by the time I got to 2017, and, and I must add there that there were, this wasn't a linear line of just going downhill. It went up and down. There were really good moments. I wasn't, I'm not someone who's sitting you uh, and telling you that on the grand final, I was depressed or anything like that. It was a really important and, and valuable part of my life. But throughout 2017, I remember looking at the preseason ahead I'd finished the grand final. I had surgery on my shoulder to get a reconstruction eight days after the grand final. Two weeks later, I had a clean out of my ankle and I spent basically the next three or four weeks on crutches and a sling. And then I arrived back at AFL preseason and went, I've got a mountain to climb again and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And by the time I got to my worst moments, when again, I hadn't slept in two weeks or longer, I really hadn't slept well in years and I was starting to get physically injured because I was so fatigued. I was going to ask I was that. Starting to, mm. Yeah. I was starting to get sick, couldn't concentrate. I'd go into the gym, I'd have my sheet of paper, great, three sets of one-arm rows with the dumbbell, but this is the weight I need to do, great. I'd walk three steps, I forget. Mm. No idea. Like, oh, God, let go back and do it again. So I got to the point where I'd essentially bounced in and out of the AFL side with injury. Um, I'd play one week, I'd get a, you know, a soft tissue injury, which I'd never had before because I was mm. still still young at this stage of 21 there's no reason that i should be having injuries like this and then i come back inside same thing would happen in the third quarter and then basically i get told okay we need you to have a week off come back play a full game in the reserves and we'll play you next week mm. and i looked down the barrel of a game in the vfl and i just couldn't possibly fathom getting through that game mm. i was like this it's not going to happen like i just can't do it and i felt so trapped by the money that I was getting paid and my you know, oh, significant responsibility. Absolutely yeah, suffocating. The, and, and not just the money, the, the responsibility that I felt to my, my teammates and my coaches and the people who had supported me. It was, it was, yeah, suffocating. It was crushing. 
But thankfully, you know, sitting in my my uh, then little one bedroom cottage in Albert Park, you know, thankfully the thought that stuck in my mind was I needed support. I needed something to change. And I needed help. And I was lucky enough to have a club psychologist who I'd spoken to really at that stage around performance mindset and basically being able to kick goals and all of that sort of stuff. And I picked up the phone and I, I remember just saying, Lisa, this is what's going on. And she said, oh, I had no idea it got this bad. What do you want me to do to help? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, really important for me because I needed to navigate the football club and the media and all of the things. And I'm at the most vulnerable point in my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to Lisa's credit and, you know, she's still a, an enormous supporter of mine, just the help that she gave me then was incredibly important. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a powerful conversation around asking for the help that you need. <laughs> but I like I, I'm still because I think I'm still so blown away because you're you're 26, you know, like you're still so young and you have. Well, I am 27 next oh, month. Oh, there you, <laughs> there you go. I've got, a, I've got a three and a half months that are old at home. So I'm trying to work that out as well. Uh, but- yeah, but this is, this is what I was going to actually come into because obviously – you have a newborn. Congratulations, by the way. It's very Thank exciting you. time. But that also brings with it a lot of sleep deprivation. And for me, that was a real catalyst for my postnatal depression. Yeah, I don't think people fully comprehend how important sleep is in terms of mental health and managing mental health strategies. Um, yep. How have you navigated it with life as a parent now? I uh, would say that I am in the very, very lucky percentile of people where their babies sleep quite well. Um, So that's helping. But the other thing that I would say, and I can't express this more sincerely, my fiancé Anna, and we would have been married two years ago, but COVID stopped the once and then a baby stopped the second one. So (laughs) for all intents and purposes, we're married. Yeah. At least that's what I tell her. She said, oh, well, I haven't seen the, you haven't said any vows yet, so that doesn't count. Anyway, she has been the single greatest supporter of me through my good times, through my bad times. And the way that she has stepped into motherhood has been nothing short of incredible. Mm. Um, she, it was like she was just born to be a mother. And I have seen friends who... Perhaps that's not the case. I've seen friends where it is and I just, I wake up every day and I am so, so thankful to have her in my life and have her looking after our child whilst I, you know, have my crazy hectic schedule and also being extreme, extremely flexible in terms of just making sure that we get to spend the time together. And mm. yeah, that makes all the difference in the world uh, to me in terms of the sleep, but also just in terms of my ability to yeah have an amazing start to parenthood. Do you, so you were talking earlier about not feeling like you had the exact footy career that you would have imagined. Was that mostly to do with kind of having injuries or is it the mental health stuff that kind of really impacted that experience for you? There's a lie in the book uh, right at the end, which Simone helped me with because we were trying to work out like, right, this book is, uh, it's stacked with value, but what is the actual, what is the ethos of the book? Mm. And part of it is what we talked about before around the difference between our perception of reality and what reality actually is. It's like 
the dream of what we want life to be versus the reality of what the experience ends up being. And the reason why I would say beyond my short career, I mean, I had two and a half years left in my contract. Mm. Um, I undoubtedly think, particularly as a big, tall player, I would have been able to get another extension either at the Bulldogs or somewhere else. The reason why I would say that my football career was disappointing was that I chased that dream my entire life. From the moment I walked onto Mullum Mullum Reserve for my local junior football club, I walked into the nicotine-stained, disgusting, dirty club rooms that they had at the time and looked at the photo of my dad holding a premiership cup, getting beer poured on his head. Mm. Black and white photo, quite iconic. That was all I wanted to do. And I worked my absolute butt off from five to 10. And of course, there's a varying degree of work that goes in as you get older. Mm. That's all I wanted. And for 99% of my career, it didn't make me happy. Mm. Now, I had great moments. I have an enormous amount of respect and, and gratitude for the people that I've met, the experience that I've had, the impact that I've been able to have as, as a footballer on the Western Bulldogs supporter group, mm. for instance. And also the work that I'm able to do now. But football just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it just didn't match up with me as a person. And I'm very open and honest to say that I didn't have the mental fortitude to do it anymore when I retired. And I certainly think that played a large impact in my ability to achieve what I wanted to achieve when I first set out on that first day of pre-season training um, in Sydney. Mm. How do you know... At what were you, 24, 23? You were 23. You were 23. As you said, you had, you know, another two, two and a bit years on your contract. That's a big call to make, you know, when you're obviously earning good money, you know, you still got that contract there. As you said, you probably would have been signed up for another, another round. What, how does someone have that ability at such a young age to go this, I just know that this isn't what I want. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a decision that happened overnight. I had this conversation with uh, Gary Zimmerman, who, if you watch the Bulldogs play, he's the club doctor with the comical mustache. <laughs> but he's a love he's a lovely guy and a great supporter of mine has been for a long time. And I approached him in confidence at the end of 2018, so about five or six months before I retired. And at this stage, I'd been injured with a you know a, a very, very painful disc injury in my back for mm. probably five or six months. And I said just to Gaz watching uh, watching the boys train, I said, man, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. And it's not just because I'm injured. I just I don't I don't want to go through the pain of, of the injury that I'm facing. I don't love it anymore. And he gave me a really prudent bit of advice, which was never make life-changing decisions from rehab. Now rehab in this context obviously is being injured in sport. And his messaging was really around when you're really happy, really sad or really angry, don't make decisions that are life-changing because the likelihood that you're seeing things objectively and clearly is pretty low. So I listened to that advice. I took it in stride and I decided get back to playing football and let's make a decision then. And I did that. I played a few games in the BFL and almost immediately I realised I didn't have it anymore. I didn't have the edge I didn't have the drive. The players I was playing against wanted it more. I was not physically in the shape that I needed to be in, both because I hadn't 
been looking after myself in terms of being meticulous with my diet. But two, I hadn't trained in eight months mm. and I'd sort of been fast-tracked over six weeks to get back out there and it just wasn't working. And I remember there was a moment where at this stage in the aftermath of basically all of the challenges that I'd really culminated uh, in 2017, I had decided to reintroduce university back into my life. I just needed some intellectual pursuit that I could focus on and distract myself enough from football because I was just a chronic overthinker. Mm. And I was sitting in the Victoria University car park up on Ballarat Road and I was going into a class at 6pm at night, one of three that I had for the week. So I was doing 6 till 9pm, three days a week. So it was a pretty heavy workload. And I was going into a class which I from my memory, it was something like entrepreneurship yeah. where I don't know how you teach someone to be an entrepreneur, but... <laughs> I don't even know how to that. say the word, let alone how, to, yeah, how do you I teach mean, that? <laughs> they sold me that they could and then, you know, anyway, my point being, I'm sure it was boring. I'm sure it was just a class that I was going into to distract myself and, and keep this sort of principle of balance that I was looking for. But I was more excited to walk into that dirty old building then I had been to walk into the football club in a long time. And it was so visceral to me that, oh, there's something not right here. Mm. And so not in any amount of despair, not in any amount of fear or real worry. I just sat there and I contemplated it for a bit. I called Anna, my fiancé, and said, yeah, I'm going to give it up. Like, I, I don't want to play anymore. And she goes, oh, have you thought about it? And I said, yes, I've thought about it for a long time. We've spoken about it before. And she's like, okay, well, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. And then I also called the club psychologist, Lisa, again. And she said, oh, do you want me to help? And, you know, I think one of the big character arcs or one of the big journeys or maturity things that I went through was in that moment, I said, no, I actually don't need your help. This one's on me. I've, I've got the understanding of what I want. And I spoke to my parents and we set up a meeting with Peter Gordon. And within a couple of days, um, it was all over. Mm. Now, the best thing that I did at the end of it, and which is also part of the book, which is something I'm actually really, really proud of to this day, is I came in for my end of year, uh, sorry, my end of year, my, my retirement speech, if you will. Now, I'd watched heroes of the Western Bulldogs retire, and there's tears and there's notes and there's 20 minutes, and they earned that moment in the spotlight for one last time. I hadn't. I'd had moments and had a fleeting sort of uh, time in the sun, if you will, but my career wasn't what those guys had given to the football club. So I got up there and I said two things. I said, firstly, I want to make sure that absolutely every one of you understands that you're not the reason I'm leaving. In fact, you're the reason I've lasted as long as I have. And two, to all the players in the room, if you're thinking of renegotiating your contract, now would be a really good time. <laughs> and so everyone laughed and everyone felt good. It was sort of a bit of a delayed reaction because I think everyone was expecting a big sad sort of moment. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I left the room smiling and I think that was a really important thing. And to get to the actual specific question that you asked, for whatever reason in my life, I've always been not critical but I, I've never understood the people who aren't capable of understanding when it's time to turn the page. Mm. When is the next chapter of your life going to start? Now, that might be in business where you're in a, you know, a crappy job situation and you need to take a chance and go out on your own and do your own thing. Easier said than done, of course. Um, and financially, I was in a position where I could do that and I understand all of that. But there's also a lot of athletes who I've seen punish themselves mm. for years searching for something that's probably not there anymore 
And the great identity crisis that so many athletes face is really that they've chased that dragon so long. And when they left and the dust settles and no one's there to help them, that's the hardest part of their life when they have to rekindle everything and start again. And I didn't want that to be me. Mm. And so, yeah, I turned the page. I wanted to do things in the mental health space. I wanted to work with good people and I wanted to wake up in an environment where whatever I did for the day, whether it was walk the dog, have a meeting, have a coffee, catch up with someone, whatever it was, that it was all things that I'd chosen to do. Mm. Because much like you, Libby, I've been told what to do since I was five years old mm. and I was ready to make my own decision. So um, it wasn't without fear in the future. There was an uncertainty that came, especially when COVID hit, but there was never doubt that I'd made the right decision in terms of moving on from football. I think that's that's incredibly powerful because I I was one of those people who had every intention of going on <laughs> until the end of time if I could have. Yeah. Um, and the only reason that I retired was because I actually got injured and I actually think that was one of the best things not at the time. Obviously, getting injured is not ideal as you would know no. very well. But for me, I needed to get injured to kind of force myself to stop, I think, because I was really yep. scared of what life after sport was going to look like. And it's, do you feel like because you knew what you wanted to go into, even though it may not have been a, you know, necessarily a specific role or a job that was available to you, although that may have been the case, do you feel like because you knew you wanted to go and work in the mental health space that that was an easier transition? Uh well, it was a good idea. I didn't have a lot of structure behind the decision. Yeah. I certainly uh, didn't know what I was going to do the next day or the next week for that matter. I think the, the guiding principle that I had was that I had a North Star that I knew I wanted to follow and that certainly helped. Mm. Uh, I also think that one of the great mistruths that is told to athletes and people generally speaking is networking is the way to go, right? Because you're going to... Networking for me was always I just tried to treat every person who treated me well the same. Yes. Whether they I didn't know who they were, didn't know how much money they had or what job. And what I actually found was that many of them came knocking when I retired, whether they were trying to support me or ask me what I was doing. And I didn't go into a, a job for some time after my football career finished. But um there was people there that wanted to support me, which I was so grateful for. Mm. And for me, I think. The other thing was that, yeah, again, I had a partner there to support me and I, and I knew the sort of direction I wanted to go. And I think that fear around what am I going to do was the motivating factor to actually go and explore what that looked like. And I remember I got asked by a school out in, uh, in Werribee called Westbourne Grammar and they'd contacted me or my manager or something and they'd said, oh, we'd love Tom to come out and do a talk for us. And I said, great, that sounds sure. I hadn't really thought about it. Now, I was a relatively confident public speaker. I mean, yeah, sure, I did some at school or whatever. <laughs> I remember sitting in the car with all these notes. I'd written all this big essay and I just panicked. I was like, I, I, can't, I can't remember it. I can't get this cadence right. I just can't get it sort of memorised and, and done properly. And then I left the, the notes in the car. I went into the room and I just spoke, honestly. Mm. And... You know, the, uh, the, I'm sure it wasn't as good as I thought it was at the time, but <laughs> it, uh, it felt right. It felt like I was connecting with young people and it felt like there was a message there that I hadn't heard when I was at school. So, yeah, it was uh, sort of the guiding 
principle, I think, that let me be curious and explore what it could look like in terms of the complexion of my work. And nothing's really changed um, since in terms of what actually guides my decision-making. So, like, with your mental health now, how do you – do you still have to manage it? Because I think there's also that misconception that once you've done the work – you're fine, you know, you don't have depression or you don't have anxiety anymore. But for me, I know that isn't true and I have to manage it through very specific ways in my daily life. Do you find that you have things that you need to do every day? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've spoken about structure and exercise and all of these sort of little things that um, are important in my daily, weekly and monthly routine. And, you know, the, the question I always get is like, what's the one thing to do? And in reality... What's the magic the question, bullet? <laughs> yeah, the silver bullet does not exist, I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah. There, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think one thing is that, you know, I think as humans we have a, a real tendency for inertia or momentum in what we're doing, whether that's good or bad. Mm. Right? Like when things are going well, we just keep going and we presume that they will continue to be good. Things are going poorly, we tend to do the same. We go, well, I'm in this job, I'm just going to keep suffering, suffering. And so I think one of the great things that people can do is really reflect on where they're at in their life and what they actually want to do. Goal setting and accountability and feedback and feedback loops are a huge part of athletics and sport, generally speaking. Now, I've been given feedback like 50 times a day. Most people get feedback, at least in the career sense, once every 12 months. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if their manager or, or leader is actually sort of having a performance planning mindset. So I think taking stock is really important and actually planning about what you want your life to look like. But the way I would say that the biggest shift that I had post 2017 where I sort of hit my darkest points was I, one, didn't access support. Two, I tried to ignore it. Three, I tried to avoid it. Did all the typical things that, you know, people who are suffering mental health decline did, did it all. But what I wasn't capable of then was picking myself up after a bad day and going, how do I stop this from being a bad week? Mm. And if I've had an average week, let's say at a, on a cumulative level, how do I stop that from being a bad month? Mm. And being able to stop that slide is really the probably the biggest difference I have in my own toolkit than I didn't have when I needed it when I was playing football. And that doesn't sound super like applicable for everyone. I mean, it's something that I really had to learn, but it's, you have to really, really want to be better. Mm. And that sounds crass. And I know I also am very, very aware that there are, and I have people in my family who have mental illness and that's a different kettle of fish to what I'm talking about. But in terms of mental health and specifically with the experiences that I had, for me, it's a, clear determination around I want to be better, I need to be better for my partner, my daughter, my family, all of the people that rely on me and I support. And that is, you know, that's a daily and a weekly and a monthly thing that I continually need to focus on. So no silver bullet, but certainly... Come on, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I actually will say the other thing I really try to do, not in terms of looking after myself, but in terms of not being prescriptive to other people, Mm. I... I'm not, I'm not educated enough, nor skilled enough, nor equipped enough to really tell people how to live their lives. Yeah. And more than once in the last 12 months, I've been asked to give advice to young footballers and people in general who are struggling or in, either in the limelight. My answer is I don't have any advice. Mm. My advice would be get the support that you need and work through it with the people that really care about it, you and know you very well. Because 
I don't know if you guys remember, my career didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to. So I don't have the recipe for all the blueprint for success. Mm. I have an experience that, you know, life can throw really big curveballs at you. Mm. And you're better off dealing with those curveballs with a few other people rather than just trying to bat them away yourself. It's so empowering to talk to you because you have this really beautiful mix of like understanding that your experience is your experience and that there are commonalities with other people, but ultimately you don't have the answers for necessarily you and you're, you're workshopping and you're continuing, uh, continuing to learn about yourself and, you know, add value in different ways that you can, but ultimately everyone's journey and experiences are their own and that's ultimately what they have to kind of explore themselves. Exactly right. I mean, I've. It's a really popular clip where I don't know what award he was getting, but Matthew McConaughey talks about his hero being himself in ten years' time. And then when he gets to ten years, did you make your hero? No, my heroes mean ten years' time, right? So it's this, it's the story of evolution as a person. Mm. Mine's a bit more retrospective, which is every three years I look back and think, what a, what an absolute idiot I was three years ago. But but if you don't do that, if you're sitting there and you're going, geez, I had a pretty workout three years ago, it means that you haven't moved forward and you haven't mm. progressed. And I can't, and it was actually one of the great challenges writing this book, right, which was how do I look back at periods of time when I was significantly less mature or aware and understanding of who I was as a person and go, this is how I was feeling with the lens of also understanding that what I tried to do in the book is say, this is what I was thinking, but I also understand other people's perspectives and why their actions were their actions. Mm. And it was a really tricky balance because I didn't want to spend too much time basically saying, I've worked it out now, here's the answer. But I also didn't want to just say, uh, immature Tom thought this and mm. you know, insecure Tom thought that and really not give an insight into some of the answers that I worked out later on. Yeah. And then that's part of the evolution that we have as people, right? And as you said, I don't have everything worked out for myself. I certainly don't have everything worked out for, you know, my life. Um, but what's the point of going through life if you have all the answers? Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, that's part of the beauty of life, right? It's it's the excitement and the anticipation of what's to come and how we can continue to grow and challenge ourselves in new and interesting ways and not just doing what people think that we're going to do because that's what people think that you should do. Yeah, the uh, the uh, desire of people to prescribe what you should do with your life is never been more popular. It was one of the really big decisions I made. So when I moved away from just doing speaking, there was a couple, a couple of reasons I've sort of articulated around structure and that was really important. The other thing was that I felt... And I feel like I'm aware that I don't have all the answers, which again, we've spoken about. But the third thing was I cannot stand listening to people tell the masses how life should look. I just, I can't comprehend how that would be applicable or accurate or useful other than if you're giving them advice surrounding being interested in your own self, mm. looking at the different things that you can do to evolve, supporting yourself, getting people to support you. Concepts where basically you're looking at pooling collective wisdom rather than going, you know, on TikTok, which I do not have or go on, but no, Instagram or whatever <laughs> it is. Like whenever I see those short clips that say, this is where, the way to live your life, I'm like, what are we talking about here? You've met this person five seconds ago and you're speaking to a thousand people. Anyway, so my whole guiding 
thought around that was I don't want to be a talking head. I want to do something more and I want to work with people more intimately, which is why I joined a company called Everperform, which is where I work now. And I get to work with great people and clients um, and really look at improving their overall work experience mm. um, and looking at well-being as part of performance and looking at exactly. how their relationships are as part of performance and looking at productivity in the as it pertains to how they feel about the work they're doing and how that pertains to performance. Like that's, that is fascinating to me because it was always something that was prevalent in sport now, whether it was lived through in reality. Performance always came first, obviously. Mm. But that is a fascinating field for me to work in and so I feel like it can make a massive impact. Yeah, yeah. because I, I, I have this theory, this is my working theory, that uh, you have to have something in you that is that essence of not enough. Like there's something that you're tr- constantly trying to prove as an athlete or as a high performer in general to be able to dedicate and focus your life purely on this one thing to get that greatest performance out of you, which is obviously yep. can be incredibly detrimental to your mental health and your your um, identity and all of those sorts of things. But I'm – because now I've got, I've got three young girls, I'm like I don't want them to feel like they're not enough – but I do want them to be able to feel like they can go and achieve whatever they want to achieve. But so what is that line? Like how yeah. can we make uh, sure that we're yeah. taking care of well-being as well as performance? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way I look at it, I mean, there's a quite a simple analogy I would use. When we talk about anxiety and the fears that people have and the real chronic anxiety, which again is prevalent in my family, there's a difference between that and walking up to the starter block and feeling nervous and going, I'm jittery. That is one of the most powerful emotions we can have to perform at our peak Mm. and actually not welcoming it because it's really comfortable, but overcoming that is where you get this enormous rush of satisfaction. Mm. And I think the unfortunate messaging surrounding anxiety has been or maybe it's just been lost in the broader conversation as we all navigate this really complex topic and it's a complex topic particularly at scale Mm. is that anxiety is the problem or anxiety is a bad thing now anxiousness before something that is important to you is a driving part of how we actually get what we want and that outcome and I, i would say that in a way is the analogy that we're talking about what is the push and pull between if you're in business and you are just happy and you know floating around well great the business still needs to make money mm. and you still need to contribute to doing that exactly. but if the business is abusing your health mental or physical and they're making heaps of money well in today's day and age those people will leave your business and the mm. business won't succeed long term so the uh, term that I'll pinch from one of our best clients is the goal is not to win tomorrow the goal is to basically have smooth and sustainable growth over a long period of time. Mm. There's no point going at 150% for six months and then going at 50% for the next six months because you still end up in the same place probably with a whole heap of other issues that you otherwise wouldn't have had. So we haven't found the answers, unfortunately. So I can't tell you your three, I'm sure, beautiful daughters exactly how to get it right. But <laughs> Damn it. I would say we, we need to continue our ch- to challenge ourselves because avoidance doesn't work either. Mm. Exactly right. I want to finish with two final questions. For you in your sporting career, what is the moment, is there a moment that you were incredibly proud of? Obviously, you know, winning a, an AFL premiership is is something that's massive and obviously 
would make you feel good but are there moments that are a bit more quiet that maybe the media or the public in general don't aren't aware of that you're that moment was like that's what I'm really proud of yeah I would say the grand final but not for the reasons that people think so the questions you get asked is like your life changes Mm. it was great and all the people were there the choir moments around the grand final that stand out to me are the interactions with the fans of the football club who have supported the club for, let's say, four to five times as long as I've been alive mm. at that time. Like, this is a very real thing. Footscray is not a rich suburb. It's been a suburb that historically has had a very low socioeconomic um, level. It's had a football club who's almost gone broke multiple times and has required the hard-earned money, emotion, resources, time of the people of that suburb to succeed and survive. Mm. Like, that's a very real thing. So the interactions that I'm lucky enough and blessed enough to have with these people is, you know, on multiple occasions, particularly with the older generation, they come up to you and they shake your hand and they grab you with two hands for some reason and kind of hold on a bit too long and everyone's a bit like, you know, <laughs> like, oh. this is kind of uncomfortable. Are we going to, are we doing this? Or? Are we doing it? How does this work? When did that thing? <laughs> But the messaging they say to me, and of course to many of my teammates, I certainly have no illusions that I'm the only contributor on that day, is thank you for what you did. Mm. Um, thank you so much for your contributions. I never thought that I would see the day where the Western Bulldogs won a premiership and now I can die happy. And for me, that's the magic of sport. Do they that still the do that now? Yeah, of course, all the time. Wow, like I get amazing. pulled up on the street or whether I'm at functions or wherever I'm, it's incredible. It's an incredible experience and, and something that I'm enormously grateful for. And, again, to your point, it happens in the quiet moments when no one's there to take snap, happy snaps or, you know, to film it or record it and no one's clapping. It's just pure human emotion that sport has a unique ability of drawing out of people. It, oh, beautiful. Yeah, goosebumps. That's amazing. My final question is what advice would you give, <laughs> I mean, I know how you like to prescribe people what they should do with their lives. Um, I've ruined your last question like, for shit. you already. <laughs> yes. um, what advice would you give young kids um, around, you know, making those decisions around retirement? You know, someone might be thinking about it right now in their sporting career. What is there some general advice or, you know, a very prescriptive list step-by-step that people should take from you? Um, I, I wouldn't have any advice around the actual actions to take. I think the process of analysing where you're at is something I can probably shed some light on. So my overall experience with retirement was it popped into my head for the first time in 2014. And mm. that was because of the difference between playing junior sport and senior sport in terms of the like feeling of camaraderie and friendship and community was just so drastically different. Now, that was partially a function of the fact that the Giants were like a three-year-old club and they were trying to work it all out. Again, we're not here to bash the Giants. But this was a consistent thought that continually popped up and it was really about the absolute detachment between what I valued as a person, which was like, you know, my mum's favourite saying is my gym madness. It was always be nice to people, they'll be nice to you and treat people with respect and all that sort of stuff, which I did and I, I tried to do as much as I can today and it's certainly something I feel like I can li- I, I do live up to that didn't really matter if you didn't perform on the weekend mm. like it did but it didn't like the golden principle was yeah did you get enough kicks marks and handles yes. and I didn't I couldn't mentally do the gymnastics to get that to work with my life so when I got to the point 
of retirement, it was a long, thought-out, strenuous, difficult conversation that I'd had with myself over a number of years. And I was also, which I'm also very honest about, I was financially capable of doing that without basically running out of money tomorrow. Mm. Now, I would never, ever prescribe someone to go and trade career issues for financial ones because financial issues are the number one driver of mental health decline and mental health challenges in Australia, at least the last time I checked. So there's an analysis that each of us need to do about what we're doing, why we're doing it and who we're doing it with that is a complicated one and it's not an easy one to get to the decision. But what I would encourage everyone to do is that long chronic periods of time doing either work that you hate or that work that you are doing with people that you don't appreciate or don't appreciate you or you don't get along with isn't conducive to a happy and long life. Mm. So whether you change or make the decision to retire, which again, isn't the correct term, change career. Change careers. Whether you plan to do it tomorrow or in five years time, if you have a passion or you have a purpose that you want to seek out, do the legwork beforehand to get yourself into a position where you can chase that dream because again for athletes we didn't do the things that everyone else did when we were kids Mm. we grew up playing sport we grew up in the pool or for me on the football or basketball court and when i left i had to walk away from something that i'd basically done since i was four years old Mm. Uh, and it was a really challenging decision but the right decision for me after all of the analysis and the sort of reflection that i'd done well, that was brilliant. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. It was um, really enlightening to hear your experiences told from your perspective. And you should be incredibly proud of the work that you're doing in the, in the mental health and mental illness space because it's something particularly men need to talk about more and to have someone of your stature, you know, who's well-respected within the sporting community talk about this stuff openly and honestly is is a a real value add to society in general so congratulations well it's very kind and thank you for having me it's always a bit of a starstruck moment for me (laughs) so um i appreciate it and i appreciate the work that you're doing as well and yeah, I mean, my ultimate goal is if we can move this conversation and this overall sense of well-being, I'd say, of the community of at least Victoria and Australia, one percent forward every year. That's uh, that's going to be an amazing impact on the people that are, are living in our great country. Magic, awesome. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate all your time. Legend. No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on All That Glitters with Tom Boyd. Uh, he was such an interesting guy. I, I really, um, I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting when I was going to interview Tom because I am not a huge AFL nut, but he just absolutely blew me away. The way that he was able to articulate so beautifully so many different parts of his experiences you know of mental health and his balance between you know having the confidence to know that he's adding value in in very specific ways but understanding that that doesn't necessarily apply to to different people's lives and and their particular situations I just yeah super impressed especially like I I feel like I kept going on about it but he's only 20 
six. Like that's that's nuts. <laughs> um, and, and again, if you want to learn more about Tom, his book Nowhere to Hide is a great read. It's an exceptional tale of his experiences through the AFL and you know his mental health journey. So highly highly recommend those. Details will be in the show notes. As always, like, subscribe, share, please, rate, review. That would be amazing. Uh, I honestly appreciate all of the support that we've had for the podcast so far. Yes, we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Have a great one.